0: Hey everybody, it's Scott Weinberg, and welcome to another patron episode of your fourth favorite podcast, It's 80s All Over, starring me, Scott Weinberg, and Drew McQueenie. Drew? Well, since you sang, I'm going to have to dance now. Hold on. Oh, go, go. Break it down. it down. Oh, Oh, down. Oh man, if you could have seen that, that was amazing. Dude, how do you, your worm is, it gets better every time I see it.
1: That's what it sounds like when I do the worm. I am doing it very wrong. Um,
0: hey, man, what's going on? What are we doing for this bonus episode? Oh, you, should we kibitz first? All right, let's kibitz. How are your children? Uh,
1: they're good. They're here this week, and they uh, they are desperate to uh, appear on the website in some way. So if there's video content this week, and I think there will be, uh, they'll probably run through the background and scream. Yeah, you anything. know,
0: I never signed off on that video content. I just l- logged into Patreon one day, and I was like, oh, we're putting up video content now. What can I... I could take you like I could do a video of my closet full of VHS and old cassette tapes. (laughs) That would be amazing. What is it that we are covering this week on this patrons episode?
1: Well, it's time for another mailbag. We haven't done one in a while. And clearly from the response, the moment we brought it up this morning, you guys want one. So uh, yeah, mailbag all over.
0: Uh, I have some on Twitter and then Drew has some from patron, Patreon. So we're going to alternate. And so that way we spread the love to as many listeners as possible. Our friend Brian Scuttle, S K U T L E, a long-time listener. Whether it has been how a particular movie landed with you upon revisiting it, or the logistics of the show, what has been the biggest surprise for you upon doing the show? Okay, what what what's been our biggest surprise, Drew, or um, you? i our not our collectively.
1: I think for me it was uh, realizing that. Having seen something once 37 years ago does not mean I've seen something. Um, really, well, yeah,
0: true, true, this true.
1: revisit has surprised me because so many of my set in stone sort of opinions have been challenged by what we've been watching. And uh, I am realizing that it is very true that you know when you watch something and who you are when you watch it, 100%, 100% impacts what it is that you take away from it.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, sometimes like for a movie like uh, Flash Gordon or Popeye, uh, your your love for a film gets compounded uh, through years and you get more in love with it as you see it through adult eyes. But more often than not, you are such a different person from 35 years ago that, you know, you think, yeah, that was kind of funny. And now I think it's tasteless. That's not you um, virtue signaling or being any. It's just you have changed. In your heart, you're in your person, you've, maybe you've seen things over years where you're like, "Oh, I used to think that joke about bullying was pretty damn funny, but now I've seen things in the last ten, three decades, and I'm not, I don't think it's funny anymore. I'm not offended. I just don't think it's funny. And that happens a lot. And you know, uh, I think that the fun of the show is that you know we get to discover stuff. Uh, in our next episode, I can think of two Indies from January of '84 that I never even heard of, liked them both a lot. Uh, so those are great discoveries. Uh, just recently, I'm still embarrassed to admit I had never seen Yentl and I was really kind of moved by that film. So I was, uh, that was a nice surprise. I didn't know if I would be cynical about it or if I would be bored by it, but no, no, I liked it. Drew, can you think of any individual movies that like either you liked more than you used to? Um,
1: more than I used to. Well, the one that really surprised me and that I was a little bit bummed about was Melvin and Howard, a movie that I spent years and years and years really ranting and raving about. And now I find it, it, it's a mild pleasure. I, I, I like the film for what I like it for, but it's weird that my rabid love of it. And I really have a hard time remembering what it was that set me off in the first place. So, That was a a strange one where for years I just carried that around as a given. Well, Melvin and Howard, obviously one of the giants. And, you know, I I think it's a low-key pleasure now. Our next question is from Steve Prokopke. I know that guy. Steve Prokopke. I always say his name wrong. Prokopke. Because I've called him Capone my entire life.
0: Steve Prokopke, one of our lovely friends from Chicago, longtime writer, friend, and supporter. Loves our show. We love him.
1: So he asks, Drew, you frequently mentioned your addiction to film novelizations during the 80s. I'm wondering, do one or two stand out in your mind as being particularly illuminating in terms of opening up a particular film and providing details that seem indispensable in the context of the bigger story being told? I think the one that really stands out as uh, the above all winner of the novelization sweepstakes would be The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai.
0: Why? And... Right. When, so like how I asked why I had to interrupt to ask why As if you weren't going to explain it.
1: <laughs> well, and I think, and I think it's, it took me, I, I recently bought it again.
0: Is there a lot of stuff in it? That's not in the fi- the final film. A hundred
1: percent. And more than that, what it does is it sets it as it's novel number 37 in a pulp series. So throughout the entire book, there are footnotes that refer to other adventures in the Buckaroo Banzai universe. And they're written as if those things exist, and they're in print, and you read them, and they're ri- and it's so persuasive in setting this larger context up that by the end of the book, I totally believe in the Buckaroo Banzai universe in a way I don't even in the movie. I wow. love the movie. Is that
0: uh, is that hard to find or is that still readily available?
1: Yeah, you can buy it. You can they republished it as a trade paperback about eight or nine years ago, and it's it's available. Okay, and it really to me it is what they wanted the movie to be and couldn't quite get to, that's the book. The other example is The Abyss, where Orson Scott Card was brought on very early by Cameron to write the novel, and he wrote three chapters, one about Bud, what about Lindsay, one about um, Michael Bean's character, um, when they were children. And it's uh, chapters about the formative events that turned them into who they were. Those chapters were then given to the actors so that they could use them as backstory for the characters. And so when you see the novelization, which was based on the original cut with the wave at the end and all the stuff that Fox cut out, um, the backstory that Orson Scott Card created ended up informing those performances, which is a rare back and forth between two creators. And I do think uh, that book actually ruined me for the film because that ending was intact. And then when I went to the theater and it wasn't there, I was a little outraged I, I didn't understand what they'd done i didn 't know they just ran out of money and time
0: mm, um i can att- i i don't have a great memory for which ones i know that uh for years i had uh, i had read i read novelization for a horror film called final exam and then i found we covered that way back in nineteen eighty one and that movie was terrible. Uh, I, I do I, – people will freak out if I don't mention that everybody should buy the novelization of Jaws the Revenge because it takes a horrible movie and then it injects a subplot involving voodoo that was cut from the final <laughs> film. Uh, yeah, our mutual friend A.J. Bowen sent me that paperback as a birthday present one year. Um, and, but I used to buy them, like we used to go into the book swap and I would buy like one or two, either a, K- a Stephen King or a Dean, uh, Dean Koontz or if not likely, but if there was a Cl- Clive Barker, I hadn't read, but beyond the, the horror stuff, I would wander through the movie section. And I remember in addition to novelizations, we covered these briefly, there's the photo novelization, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, I would love for us to do a bonus episode on novelizations and I want to find, an expert out there on novelizations.
1: Well, there's a, what we'll do is we'll tie that in. There's a documentary that someone's making, and I believe it's some of the Jodorowsky's Doom guys because I got interviewed for it, and it's a no, it's a documentary simply about novelizations and about that whole culture.
0: Got to throw in this plug. You're, everybody's about to thank me if you've not heard of it. Go to YouTube, search for audiobooks for the damned, and you will find. A audio renditions of several novelizations, including obscurities like like, we there's, I'm looking right now. Batman Returns, Back to the Future Three, Blade Runner, Ghost Ghostbusters. Uh, uh, what's it? Firewalker? Uh, Rocketeer, a Benji movie, Conan the Barbarian, Kingdom of the Spiders, Fright Night. This is a it's a great channel on YouTube. (laughs) Terrific. Now the and it's weird. There's the alternate
1: thing, which is books that became movies, where the books are so radically different that when you read them, it's a separate experience. Uh, Who censored Roger Rabbit is a terrific example of that, and we're about to cover a movie uh, called Creator, where the novel by Jeremy Levin one of the very best novels I've ever read, and the movie is so utterly removed from that that it is almost unthinkable to me.
0: From our old-school fan, Jeff Movie Man, that's all one word, Jeff Movie Man, if you could enter the world of any movie from the 1980s, a la Blank from Ready Player One, what movie would you guys pick? Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, God, yes.
1: <laughs> I would love to play in that world for a little while, and... Uh, be able to play with the physics of that world for a little while. And it seems like one of those things where if you buy into that world, if you're Eddie Valiant and you lean into the cartoon thing, you get to be like a cartoon. I would love that. That would be my choice.
0: Great. No, that's a great pick. A, A similar pick, I suppose, is I would probably make Back to the Future because I would love to spend some time with those characters in the 80s. And even better, I've always I'm fascinated by the 50s and I would love to go back there and I would be, you know, how like Biff had, you know, Casey Schmasco and all those guys helping him out. I would be I would be Marty McFly's nerdy Jewish friend, like, yo, come on, get away from him. Leave him alone. You know, like (laughs) that, you know, I'd be like, I love it. Scott Weinberg and then you know at the end I'd pop up and Lorraine would be like hey Scott and I'd be like hi Lorraine you know I'd be like a real character um either that or used cars wow all right so Zemeckis clearly yeah I want to live in a Zemeckis movie wow that's weird I didn't do that on purpose clearly the winner of this one Zemeckis all right Harry uh, and the Hendersons
1: well and that's funny because our next question is what is your favorite consecutive run of films by a filmmaker in the 80s? Mine is probably Zemeckis.
0: I love this question. Okay, so wait. You best streak in the 80s? In the 80s, yeah. It's, it's got to be Cronenberg or Carpenter, right? Ooh, okay. I mean, um, Cronenberg, it, it, we've covered one both of, the, of one those the streaks. One here. of the
1: readers answered that Zemeckis is used cars from Rancing the Stone, Back to the Future, and Roger Rabbit. Yep. Spielberg is Raiders, E.T., Temple of Doom, and Color Purple. I would also, and Empire of the Sun is in there. Uh, Tim Burton in the 80s would be Pee Wee, Beetlejuice, and Batman. I don't know, man. It might be Cronenberg.
0: Okay, so for Carpenter, 80s only. The Fog, Escape from New York, The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble, Little China, and. Prince of Darkness and They Live. Wow. Right? I mean, like, I don't even like Prince of Darkness very much. And, like, that's my only real gripe on that list. Wow.
1: And see, I love Prince of Darkness. So, holy crap. All right. That one's pretty great.
0: All right. And then Cronenberg. Let's see, Cronenberg is maybe the man to beat. Scanners, Videodrome, The Dead Zone, The Fly, Dead Ringers.
1: Well, all right. Carpenter just has more. But there's not a weak one in that chronicle. No, no there's either. not
0: a weak one on any of these lists we've oh. mentioned. You know, All right, I, I'm going to go Joe Carpenter. Dante for Christ's sake. Oh, shit. Yeah.
1: God, Carpenter just worked like a beast in the 80s. Good for him, man. That's that. That was his
0: decade. Are you going to be able to get him for a bonus episode? I'm trying. I'm I know. i slippery. Busy, man. He's busy this year, too. I know he's touring. He's doing the international tour. Right. He's touring and he's producing the remake and scoring it. Right. Which I think is. I think the score is almost done. Okay, so uh, for Dante in the 80s, The Howling, one-fourth of the Twilight Zone movie, Gremlins, Explorers, Inner Space, parts of Amazon Women on the Moon, and The Burbs.
1: (laughs) That's that's another pretty great run. Right. Um, I think I'm going to give it to Carpenter, but here's the thing. The guys that were strong in the 80s were relentlessly strong in the 80s. It was a decade where a lot of these guys were at their very best.
0: Throw this out there not to be a dick, but to make more of a statement about what was available in the 80s. Could we do this for female directors? Well, um, there's Amy Heckerling. There's Martha Coolidge. There's Susan Seidelman.
1: I think the, the thing is it's sheer numbers. I think Heckerling, it was harder for her to set things up. So it's fewer and far between. And I think that's true for, um, you know, we're about to do the debut of uh, Catherine Bigelow in the next episode. And, you know, Bigelow really only worked twice, three times in the in the, uh, in the the 80s. All strong films, but it took her a while to get going. So I think it's tough. I just think there it's sheer numbers, and that does speak to the industry, and it does speak to who worked. Mm.
0: All right. Drew, this is from Philip underscore guest. Good old Phil guest. Which 80s film most deserved a sequel but never got one? Hmm. <laughs> Can I, uh, if we're going to, I guess maybe I'm stuck in the Joe Dante track, but I would, I would have eaten a, a rock to see an inner space sequel.
1: Yeah. You know, that's one of those mystifying commercial misses we, that was Warner brothers did a, uh, one of those paid sneaks for that. And it was two weeks before it came out. I remember we, uh, we had it at our theater and based on that paid sneak and based on the audience reaction, I was convinced Interspace was going to be the biggest film of the summer. I I was sure walking out of that theater, everybody
0: yeah, was yeah. going there to. There was Dante's- a sneak preview. If you want to uh, sneak into 1987, into a movie that Drew and I are going to gush all over. Uh, uh watch re watch or rewatch Interspace now because we both adore that movie. My uh, whether or not it's Dante's best is debatable, of course, but I it might be my favorite Dante.
1: God, it's just wicked fun, wicked commercial fun. Uh, that would have been a cool one to do a sequel to. Um, I hate to keep going back to this, but Buckaroo Banzai was made for world building. It was made for other adventures. It was literally designed.
0: If, if it didn't fall apart at the end with Sam Jones being a, a loon and, yep. oh man, there could have been a couple of Flash Gordon sequels. Get that whole cast back. Oh. Can you imagine if
1: they had got a, a Flash Gordon 2 with that attitude and that style, if it had been a hit and they had come back and doubled down. Would have been mental. I would have loved that.
0: What if Popeye had been a smash hit? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine they ever would have gotten Altman to, to do a round two because it was so hard to birth
0: it. But How about man. Tootsie? Why was there no Tootsie sequel?
1: I don't know that you could do it. I think Tootsie ends in the right place. Bl- Tootsie is one of those perfect buttons. Like that ending to me.
0: Yeah, Boom. but still, that hasn't stopped producers from making sequels oh, to perfect comedies. I know, but
1: what deserves one? What really – What? What? where are the dangling threads
0: that need to be responded to?
1: Oh, one? Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. There you go. That
0: would right. have been an
1: amazing one.
0: just yeah. Free advice to producers. Never put The Adventure Begins in your title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never, never call your first film part one. You're, yeah, you're paying to see a prologue. Don't do that. Don't tell people that um russ lichter asks i'm just curious how you guys decide the order of films each episode
1: well we start with a big raw pile of them and we divide them into there's stuff that we are going to and and some of these may turn out to be movies we really like but there's stuff that are just smaller titles titles you haven't heard of titles that are fairly obscure from one-time filmmakers and so we kind of put those up front and then we put the Bigger titles, the better known titles, the more the house. yeah,
0: more popular, yeah. Uh, but th- yeah, it, it's not just a, a, a obscure and then B popular. It's also sometimes Drew will say at the last minute, oh, put X next to Y because they're horror films, and that'll be a good segue. Or let's break these horror films apart and do horror comedy horror. Uh, or let's bunch these three french or fr- these three european films together or let's put this b movie with this a movie because they're kind of similar so that, that, that part's easy, really.
1: <laughs> and I think we've gotten better at just finding a movie that we want to conclude talking about.
0: Right. And part of it is the very simple rule of, you know, if you've got a showstopper, put it at the end. So, like, if you're going to do the right stuff or terms of endearment, it seems kind of silly to do that halfway through. That's the, you know, you want people to listen through to the episode and then end on two or hopefully two or three movies that they've either seen or at least heard of. And that way, yeah. you know, those are the three or four they're buzzed about when they're when the episode ends, you know.
1: You know, every month it's just it's a fresh challenge and, and it's a weird lineup and you just try to make it sort of feel like it works in some way that flows like a show.
0: Oh, I got a good one. Big Tom underscore 79. Which 80s pop song do you hear nowadays and immediately associate with a movie? Oh, And we will build this dream together. Stand and strong forever. Nothing's gonna stop Drew. Nothing's gonna stop Drew now. If that doesn't remind you of Mannequin, you were not born in the 80s and you are lucky. <laughs> uh, that that uh, song was everywhere from Mannequin. Everywhere. So
1: I guess they're looking more for like a song that got stuck in a movie as opposed to a song from a movie like a particular written for a song
0: i don't know who
1: cares yeah because like you know the purple rain soundtrack
0: and stuff oh, like that oh yeah no that's that's, th- that's gigantic to me but if you're just talking about you're right because purple rain goes beyond the movie when i think of when i hear a purple rain song i don't necessarily think of the movie i think of me having that cassette
1: <laughs> bum 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 neutron dance Oh, God, yeah. I hear any of that. I think of Eddie Murphy, and it's over.
0: The heat is on.
1: Yep, heat is on. Boys are back in town. There's a handful of films that just remind
0: me of that early burst of, holy shit, we all love Eddie Murphy. That's Bruckheimer right there. That's what that is. Um, Okay, Drew. I am the man who will fight for your honor.
1: Now, see, there's a whole school of songs that I have... Disturbing relationships with because they they were the closing credits of movies that I had to clean 150 times while they were at theaters. We'll live forever. Every single usher at our theater could lip sync every word to.
0: We did it all for the glory of love. That one.
1: Uh, you know what song got burned into my head in a a horrible fashion is.
0: My love
1: is like a storybook story. Oh, but yeah. That po- that Princess Bride, I cleaned that theater every single time it played at our thing, and every single time I heard that song. And by the time that left, I, it was permanent. Like, it uh, for months, I couldn't get that thing out of my
0: head. That, by the way, Glory of Love that I was shrieking, that's from uh, Karate Kid 2.
1: Yep. Yep, which played our theater for a year and a month. I like it. Uh, all right, so next up, next mailbag question. Let's see. You seem to have, an, uh, this is Jeremy White, says, you seem to have an encyclopedic knowledge of films, so maybe you could help me find a movie I remember liking from ages ago. It was either an 80s movie or early 90s, sort of a Brat Pack coming-of-age comedy romance with a young male lead who went to work at or had some interaction with a car dealership where he fell for a saleswoman who I think had short-permed hair. I think this might be Grandview, USA.
0: With C. Thomas Howell, I have not seen it. I know the film, but I've not seen it. And a short-haired Jamie Lee Curtis. I believe that's a Randall Kleiser film. Yep, and it's coming up this
1: year, uh, 1984. I believe that might be it. I haven't seen it in forever, but man, that's ringing bells. So we'll see if Jamie Lee Curtis works at a car dealership.
0: Andy Ristler, who is Racine Jedi, says, Is Terms of Endearment... Uh, in terms of endearment, was the first movie you saw Jeff Daniels in? Would Jeff Daniels be ruined for you forever?
1: <laughs> that might have been the first movie I saw Jeff Daniels in.
0: Yeah, uh, he had a
1: he's in Ragtime. Okay,
0: yeah, very. And he's not uh, particularly
1: great in Ragtime. He's a he's kind of a miserable pos in that, isn't he?
0: Yeah, uh, I, I I don't think it would be possible, given how amiable and likable Jeff Daniels has been throughout his career, that we would hold Flap Horton against him in, in terms of endearment. I mean, just his next film after this was Purple Rose of Cairo, and yeah. he's wonderful in that movie. Oh, my God. And then he's in Something Wild. He's in Radio Days. Uh, he's in Sweetheart's Dance, which is not great, but he's good in it. And then throughout the nineties arachnophobia and of course, dumb and dumber and, and so many speed. Um,
1: the only way that people could have hated flat more in terms of endearment is if they'd done like they did in the book. And I, I think it's James L. Brooks was very smart to cut this, but in the book, one of the people he slept with was Patsy. Oh yeah. It's very wise that they took that out. Cause I think that kind of kills both of those characters permanently.
0: Yep. All right. Here's our question. Uh, favorite audio commentary from an 80s movie oh well i hate to keep going back to the same well but carpenter's commentary for big trouble in little china (laughs) with kurt russell (laughs) is fantastic
1: yeah anytime the two of them are in front of a mic together it's crazy
0: yeah carpenter if you can get an audio commentary that has carpenter and um oh and of course escape from new york uh kurt russell uh, Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing, and Escape from New York. Those three commentaries are fantastic. It's occasionally they'll get into the uh, the art of filmmaking, but often it's just banter between two old friends and dads. There's uh, a lot of people got very excited recently that
1: uh, Criterion's doing uh, Princess Bride this year. That was actually a very very old Criterion. It was like early '90s. Was the first time they did it. And the commentary on that's pretty terrific. There's a lot of stuff that I did not know until watching that about like, uh, Andre the giant, for example, uh, having to learn his role phonetically because he didn't speak fluent English. So a lot of what he says in that movie, he doesn't totally get, which makes that performance, I think even more wonderful. Cause he's so good somehow. Um, but there's a lot of little information about the movie in that, um, and there are some truly great 80s commentaries. I think my favorite would have to be the one that the podcast 80s all over did for a movie called Popeye. Oh, that is terrific. Just packed. Those with information. Guys, and I'm
0: tired of them. I think they're the best. No, that one who keeps singing. <laughs> he should shut up. <laughs> oh. uh,
1: all right. So uh, let's see. Next one here. I meant to ask Scott when we had him on Kill by Kill, but completely forgot. What defines 80s horror for you two? Is there a through line that connects to the genre at the time, or was it just a high point in the cycle? That's from Patrick Hamilton.
0: Yes, and check out Kill by Kill podcast. We uh, did an episode where we discussed the first half hour of Commando. Uh, which is a lot of fun, and that will be up in August, I believe, uh, ne- next week. I think so. I'll print about what uh,
1: three or four hundred people killed in that first half.
0: Yeah, and I even got—I I asked Steven D'Souza to send me a little tidbit, a little trivial tidbit. So I got them a a, a trivial exclusive that has never been nice. discovered about uh, a, an actor who was previously cast in in a uh, movie in in Commando, but then was fired and replaced by somebody else. And I will get to it when we cover Commando, because it'll be after their exclusive, goes live. Nice. Okay, so what defines 80s horror? Well, see, what happened was, in the 70s, filmmakers were a lot more experimental and adventurous with genre, and they were getting a little more gruesome and a little more intense and a little scarier. Uh, Horror wasn't so safe anymore. Then that blossomed, some would say, fell apart because a lot of filmmakers assume that, oh, what people just want is more blood and more guts. And that kind of put a black mark on the horror genre for, I want to say the first half or so of the, um, of the decade. And then people like Carpenter and uh, uh, Cronenberg realized, okay, well, if these people are going to, you know, kind of exploit the genre to just be gross, we can advance it. We can advance what they've done in art. For example, like, if horror films hadn't been like splattery at one point, I don't know if the fly would have been able to turn out the way it did or the thing, if, if we weren't a little bit more permissive about, uh, about graphic horror at that point, both of those movies might've been trimmed a lot. So yeah. as, as I, I, and then by the time we got to the end of the eighties, we were kind of in a rut because those artistic horror films didn't always make a lot of money. And a lot of times the really good ones kind of bombed and, um, so then I guess in the late 80s, because there was now the advent of straight-to-video releases, uh, a lot of good stuff in the late 80s, but the lion's share of the stuff was kind of junky. But we, we'll, have to, we'll have to explore that in more detail when we get to the end of the decade, of course. I think the uh,
1: three things that for me define 80s horror films are, one, uh, bladder effects and a increased graphic violence using makeup effects, I think – the rise of the sequel and the omnipresence of the sequel. And I think the almost nonstop winking references to earlier generations of horror. Whether it's more nineties though? Isn't the isn't kind of the mm. meta self-reflexive. No, meta. Night of the Creeps, I think John was doing it. I think Joe Dante was doing it. Okay, I think yeah, it yeah. I think it. I think the the early. I think they were the first film brats, and I think the eighties really was a film bratty decade. And uh, I do. I feel like I think there was a lot of it in the nineties, but I think the eighties is where those things really began and got defined. So yeah, I'm going to say those are the three things that for me define the eighties horror.
0: All right, here's a good question from Mitchell Hall uh, at the Fountain seventy three. Which superhero characters could have been pulled off in the nineteen eighties? Okay, yeah, it's a good question, and I certainly think... I think they could have done The Flash pretty fairly well in the 80s as a feature film. Obviously, Batman, uh, you know, because they did in 90, so it wouldn't have been... See, and I
1: think Superman, I think the reason we didn't get a lot of great Superman films uh, throughout the 80s was a thing that they kept running into, which was, well, but... Who does he fight? What does he do? Just size-wise, I think scale-wise, I can't imagine how they would have done like real superhero fights. Because Superman 2, the end of it, was for a long time the gold standard. And
0: yeah. Uh, yeah. Yikes. I mean, that was always it certainly wasn't screenwriters that who who lacked back then. It was it was literally visual effects. You couldn't pull off something one-tenth as impressive as like the Avengers final battle. You like in the yeah. 80s, you could not. You know, I mean, you you could do stuff with special effects and editing and sound design, but, you know, like Spielberg did in Raiders, but even Spielberg back then could not. You show him the Avengers screenplay, he'd be like, it cannot be done. I can do it in animation. Let me think. Well, Wonder Woman obviously could have been done in the 80s. I think they could have. I, I, I think, think uh, just the ones that are a little bit more based in humanity, the ones are a little bit more like Batman. Yeah, he's a, he's a, a wealthy man with a lot of uh, Kung Fu powers. You know, that's his power. Right. Wonder Woman, she's a goddess, but she looks like a human woman. I mean, uh,
1: well, and I mean, God, they tried Sp- Spider-Man that entire decade was bouncing around from person to person and. I remember there was a point where Canon had the rights and they were going to do it and uh they kept threatening I know Toby Hooper for a little while was attached to Spider-Man. Um and I feel like they kept butting up against that problem as well. Okay, we have him, but how? How do we do it? And so I do I, I think the Hulk didn't work at all. The Hulk there's there I mean as a kid I I know that I watched the Hulk religiously. I I look back on the, on the television show now and it's startling to try and sit through one um i was starved for this stuff when i was a kid
0: i mean and it is all, it i mean it is the same thing every episode with very little variation and weirdly dark and and grimy
1: and adult in ways that i did not remember or didn't get when i was a kid
0: i, I would be uh, curious to go back and watch some of the old incredible hulk show if i wasn't uh n- drowning in 1980s films i uh, see i think black panther you could have pulled off I
1: think you could have done it because it's it's human scale. I think the thing would have been though that there there just wouldn't have been anybody,
0: just like the otherworldly one, the super the super high tech ones. Like I don't you know, I don't know if you you couldn't do Thor properly back then. I don't think no. Uh, yeah. It would know, have been the- Masters of the Universe. Like it would have been well, which the first Thor film feels like a remake of
1: Masters of the Universe in some ways.
0: Yeah, the problem is when you don't have access to good effects because technology is limited what you have is you're relying on costumes and and location settings you know like the visual palette on the screen you have everything has to be in camera and a lot of that stuff can date and 10 years later you're like i don't think anybody's gonna look at thor ragnarok in 10 years and go god that's cringe It, It still it works because now we have the the visual tools to create these characters
1: there is such a collision of styles and attitudes and things now that dating is going to get weirder. Culture moves both faster and slower in some ways. It's yeah, it's very weird now. I don't know what's going to be dated or how it'll be dated. Um, okay. So uh, a gentleman named Tom says you've recently said that in 1983 and star 80s specifically you reached the end of the seventies with that in mind, when and with which film do you believe the eighties ended? And see, I think this is a good, I, very strong question. I certainly think um, movies like the Adams Family series or the Men in Black series feel to me like '80s films that just happened in the '90s that very much still feel packaged and, and high concept. The Hook is an '80s film.
0: What movie ended the '80s? Scream. Scream ended the '80s.
1: Interesting. Because you feel like it's an evolution past where the 80s was into something new.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'd like to be asked this question more when we get to, like, 88 and we're closing and we're getting near the end. Uh, what what 1991 or what early 90s film, like, closed the door on the 80s? Yeah.
1: See, I, I could make the case for Jurassic Park is one hell of an 80s movie.
0: Yeah, that's
1: true. It's an 80s movie in every way except the technology. So maybe that's how you mark the change is maybe that's the moment that they were able to move forward and start making the films that
0: they'd wanted to make but couldn't quite right and and I think scream not just for horror but I think I think scream kind of elevated almost the collective intelligence of moviegoers because now they're watching a movie in which characters are aware of movies and that that alone whether you like horror or not that that uh trick that gimmick struck a real chord with the people they like that uh i like it and that's why i think a lot of people like cabin in the woods too they like movies that uh when they do it well reference other films because then it's like oh we're all in on the joke i get it
1: yeah that's what i think this whole film bratty generation did was you know the there's a reason that these movies feel like warm blankets you know like raiders of lost ark or star wars and it's because they had so much of this stuff in their dna that now they're sharing it with you and i I do think that that's what it is. Is there's that that sense that yeah, you've seen everything I've seen. So now let's go one step further.
0: Peter J Mars wants to know, who's your favorite 80s movie star whose career stalled after the 80s for inexplicable reasons? Anthony Michael Hall.
1: Yeah, okay. Yeah, he had that's he a, good had a comeback
0: when the Dead Zone hit, but I always thought of the Brat Pack, he was probably the the actor with the most versatile p- potential.
1: Uh, yeah, the guy that you thought was going to be making movies forever.
0: Um yep uh uh whatever happened to that robert downey jr or that tom cruise
1: (laughs) i know if only if only they would stayed the course man
0: well we we've we'll cover this in the next episode a lot but i do have a lot of affection for robert hayes who chose terrible movie after terrible movie and he has had a long career but you know not as a headliner so much so there's another one robert hayes okay i'll say
1: I'll, i'll tell you who i wish had made movies uh and was still making movies nonstop and had been given a chance to be a mainstream real star actor. I, I want to know what Jenny Wright could have done. I think Jenny Wright gave so many good performances and stuff that didn't always even demand her best, but she was always so interesting. And I, I really wish this town had not ground her up because I think there, there was something special going
0: on. Yeah. Most people know her from near dark. Yep.
1: Near dark or uh world according to Garp. I mean, you know her, whether you know it or not,
0: you know who should have had a much bigger career? Melinda Dillon. That too. Yeah. Like always worked, always busy, but you know, should be I it should be a household name. And you know what? D. Wallace as well. What ha I mean, good God, D. Wallace. You know, it's like I, I have no idea who represented these women, but They did not advise them in their careers properly.
1: Well, and sadly, what we're learning with a lot of these actors is if somebody vanished and you don't know why and she's female, there might be a terrible reason why. And that is the sad truth about many of these stories lately. All right. So uh, there's two questions here that I see, and I'm just looking at the screen, and I'm going to combine them simply for my answer. You don't have to. But one person, Rory Stevens, asked, what's the worst family or children's film of the decade? And another person, Zach Torbeck, asked, which movie toward the end of the 80s, like 88 or 89, are you guys dreading the most to rewatch for me? Oh, I know your answer. Yes. And I, I dude, the more I think about it, the more it's I'm not. It's not a
0: kids' it. movie, though.
1: Well, okay. I, th- I think they sold it as one, unfortunately. It's garbage. But yes, pill. I agree. The garbage pail
0: kids' movie should never be viewed by children or adults. I'll give you guys a little spoiler. If you're hoping to get to, what is it, 87, 88, and find that me and Drew both have a a weird affection for this movie, sorry.
1: No. Oh, I'm terrified. I'm terrified. I worked at the theater when it was played, and um, there were very few films that made my skin crawl when I walked into them every time. That one did it. And you know, this kind of goes – there's another question here that I'm going to throw out. And I want to address this because I I hope people realize that we don't ever walk into anything gleeful about beating the crap out of a movie. This guy asks, how many times or how many people have written in crapping all over your favorites, like how you sometimes do to others' favorites? And I'm going to warn you. And guys, there's plenty of you who love movies that we're going to talk about over the course of the rest of the series. And we're going to get to them and we're not going to love them. And in some cases, we might really dislike them. But please don't ever take that as me crapping all over your favorite, because A, I don't know it's your favorite, and B, do not I don't, I'm not trying to do that to you. If you love that movie, I mean it sincerely. Love that movie, man.
0: I don't think either of us have ever tried to talk somebody out of liking a movie. And um, the difference to this gentleman, and thank you for listening, the difference is like we offer up an opinion on our show. We don't interject into your conversation and say you're wrong for disliking or you're wrong for liking Megaforce. Hell, we had on Cargill who loves Mega Force. And that's the point, is
1: we do understand that, like when we talked about Kroll, some of our best friends love Kroll. I get it. And and I am not in any way saying my best friends are wrong or terrible people, but I think we present our case for where we believe the films land in terms of the the how well they've aged, how well they worked in the first place. And we're trying to be honest and clear eyed about it. Love is love, man. You you might love something for a million reasons that have nothing to do with that movie.
0: And that might have to do with when you saw it and who you saw it with and the experience you had. Another key point is just because we assert something as if to say, Drew, this is crap. Do you agree? I agree, it's crap. Those are not facts. They sound like we're asserting facts because we're film critics and we're sharing, but they're still just opinions. <laughs> you know, they are just no matter how firm. We are with an opinion. It's still just an opinion. And if you listen to us trash Megaforce and you're like, well, I still like it. Great.
1: When you say how many people have written in crapping all over your favorites, like how you sometimes do to others' favorites. Don't think of it that way. Think of it as if you hear us talk about something that you love and that we didn't, please reach out and tell us why you loved it. I would much rather have that conversation with you. I would love to hear why you love that movie that we didn't love. That's, that's the way to approach it, man. It's never about crapping all over your favorite thing. I would love for you to come back and convince me that there's merit in something I didn't see.
0: Uh, from Joel's Truth, especially considering the circumstances of the year you are covering right now, have you ever thought about doing a 20 hours I want back list for each year?
1: I used to do those for, uh, for my year-end lists, and I quit and i'll i'll tell you why cuz even though we we do definitely talk about films that cause us pain and uh that are difficult to sit through and man there there were some winners this year uh we definitely just just earned some of that money um i'm not going to do that anymore and i think it's because once we've talked about it i'm done talking about it i don't want to go back and kick something again and and this kind of speaks to that last comment we were just talking about I would much rather take that time in our year-end wrap-up to talk about the things we loved, to talk about things that I think really deserve your attention, to talk about small forgotten films, and maybe to one last time say, here's this imperfect thing that I I really have a fondness for, and you should check it out. It's so much more valuable and so much more worthwhile to spotlight the good than to re-spotlight the bad. All right, we're going to do a couple more here. Let's see. If you haven't I think we've addressed this, but let's go ahead and make sure we, we nail it down here. If you haven't done so before, could you identify the vintage music playing at the beginning and the end of the episodes? I recognize the intro music is the HBO main theme that preceded feature presentations with beats added by Bobby, your producer. And I remember that the composer was Ferdinand J Smith. Uh, The music at the end is from the embassy home video.
0: Um, uh, Yeah.
1: And that is embassy home videos logo. And it's funny because I, I just recently put something on and that played at the beginning and it delights me now. Like It makes me very happy when, when we get to an embassy movie. And I think it speaks to that weird attachment that we all have for film logos and I always liked, you know, there were certain ones that I liked more than others. I always liked the Orion logo for some reason. I like the Lag Company logo when it pops
0: up. I always liked the Vestron one. It was just cheesy. It just to me that signifies the '80s real well. We should ask Bob to add a few after the Embassy one, like Vestron, and maybe. Um, all right, I got one. Uh, oh well, we, this one. This is from the Bluto, 1992. Which movie towards the end of the '80s are you guys dreading the most? Well.
1: Yeah man there's some there's some winners. Uh Million Dollar Mystery is not good.
0: I'm delightedly dreading v- revisiting Pirates by Roman Polanski. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Cuz I remember yeah, kind of liking coming. it and kind of defending it to my movie geek friends up until about the mid 90s and then I stopped doing that. And it is literally just one of the most obscure big budget movies from the 80s, Pirates. Again, we played it. It was at our theater. Yep. I saw it in theaters. I don't remember much of it except a chair, a throne. That's basically what I remember. Dreading, kind of dreading Loverboy, because I definitely like that one.
1: I think you'll be okay with the run of, because there's that whole run of Patrick Dempsey fucks older ladies movies. Yeah. (laughs) There's a, there's, seriously, there's like 15 that came out over the space of about three years. I I remember
0: there was In the Mood there was lover boy can't buy me yep. lo- no no he wasn't a love the can't buy me love i think will still hold up i'm looking forward to that one
1: yeah that's uh it's funny uh, as toshi's been watching some of the teen movie stuff uh my girlfriend's been pitching in suggestions and she's a big can't buy me love supporter big fan i'm dreading the rise of the really 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 sleazy titties and guns movies and there's plenty of those coming and we're gonna have to sit through several of them so Kind of dreading that run of stuff.
0: Watching the genres like Slasher and the TNA comedies, you can almost sense producers like every six months going, all right, we got to top that. We got to top that. Like it wasn't it like, oh, private school was kind of leering Well, we have to go beyond that. Like in order for now we have to make hard bodies and hard bodies is one step away from legitimate soft core porn. Uh, so it's like, yeah, hard bodies and hard bodies, too. I'm not looking forward to those. Oh boy, M um, D over L, M Dover L. Serious question here. What was your favorite food or candy to eat in the movie theater when you were younger in the eighties?
1: Oh, easy. Uh, it was uh, Reese's Pieces. That was a good one. To me, I was
0: real. I would put them in popcorn. I would a small popcorn and a, a bag or box of M Ms. But the M Ms were almost always purchased at Rite Aid ahead of time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I, I really liked putting it in the popcorn. Yeah, that was that was pretty consistent. I, I was uh cured of the popcorn thing the first summer I worked at a movie theater. Oh, but the and smell that, oh
0: it's still beautiful.
1: Oh nope. Nope. Cured me. Cured me for good. And uh popcorn is less I'm I don't really do popcorn at all anymore. Um and it's weird because that was such a key experience when I was a kid and it was so much a part of it.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, yeah. M&Ms. I, I just like basic chocolate. I mean, like a Nestle Crunch Hershey bar, something simple. All right. Here's, a, here's one I don't have an answer for, but Gundark Hunter wants to know which revisit of a film has been the most disappointing so far.
1: Uh, I'm going to say for me, I was really hoping that this time around it would finally land and I would be able to say I defend it and I believe it's good and here's why. But Nope, I am finally off trying to even come up with a moderate defense for John Avelton's neighbors. Oh. I tried, man. I wanted to believe. I've be- and part of this is because that book by Thomas Berger, the guy that wrote Little Big Man, it's a good novel. There's something there, and there's something in the sc- – and I want to believe that Belushi and Aykroyd made it work in spite of Adelson, even knowing that they didn't.
0: And every time I go back There to You that- know what? There's another good bonus episode in uh, good books that became bad movies. Yeah. Because, I I mean, like, I can imagine you're a novelist and your book is optioned. Yay! And now, oh, my God, movie stars and the director of Rocky are making it. Oh, man, am I lucky. And then the movie comes out and it's garbage. And now your book has a stain on it that it doesn't deserve.
1: (laughs) No, I think that one for me, and it's because I really each time have that same – Terrible dream that I'm going to figure it out this time, and now I'll be able to prove. No, no, there's something there.
0: Yeah, and, but but I think that speaks to what film people like you and I, most film critics that we know, well, every film critic we know, and most film critics in general, is we want to champion. We want to say, "Oh my God, The Survivors is underrated," or "Used Cars is great," uh, or, or "Reds, watch that," you know, which is great. Or terms of endearment, which are great, celebrated films that don't get talked about much anymore.
1: Has there been any horror stuff we've done that you, you this time around, just went, ugh?
0: Not really. The Beyond, maybe a bit. I remembered remembered liking The Beyond a bit more than I did uh, recently, and it might have been just because I was in, like, you know, the fango 14-year-old kind of mindset, which is, dude, it's gross. It must be awesome. I I still like it. I just don't think it's great.
1: Uh, This guy asks, Ali Askoy asks, will certain movies that were never officially released, like Nothing Lasts Forever, be covered on 80s all over? And the answer to that is not in the main body of the show. There may be moments that we talk about films that are worth talking about, but that didn't get an official release. For example, there's there's one that I will debate this as we get closer, but I, th- I feel like we should make note of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, but it really trickled out. It was one of those movies where there were reasons that it just didn't come out in theaters or on home video for a long time well but yeah
0: i mean i think I, I think we're in agreement that that film was def- we're definitely going to cover yeah, it's, that movie. it's an 80, um,
1: it was made in the 80s there's no question it was made in the 80s it really didn't get an official release for a long time but so there's cases like that and the movie that you mentioned nothing lasts forever i think we'll probably make note of because it's a movie that became famous when it showed up in leonard malton's movie guide and anybody who would go through the movie guide would see Bill Murray and Christopher Guest and all these giant stars that were in it. But what the fuck is it? Like, Nothing Lasts Forever, I didn't get to see until I was represented out of New York uh, by a guy named Jason Fogelman. And one of his clients was Gary Weiss. And I just said, can I? Can you get me Gary's movie? And he did. Um, and now, thanks to Turner Classic Movies and thanks to that movie ending up back in rotation, it's out there. You can find it. If you want to see Nothing Last Forever, you can see it. But for a long time, it really only existed in Leonard Malton's book. And I know growing up in the 80s, I was obsessed with it because you couldn't find it. So, yeah, we'll mention that, but it'll be a special mention. It won't be in the body of the show.
0: I, I believe we have covered some films that, I mean, Return of Captain Invincible. I don't think Movie Madness, National Lampoon's Movie Madness got a, a theatrical at all. I don't know.
1: Uh, it got a very, very limited.
0: And so, look... You And the, the weird part is you could have better luck finding out about, like, um, a missing soldier from 80, 1982, uh, two, France. Like, you could dig up records on people that are easier to find than the release date for Megaforce, or... <laughs> these things are yeah. tough to nail down. But, yeah, I, I think we will,
1: but I, I doubt you'll ever see it in the body of the show. We'll always make special mention if it's something that didn't get a theatrical release, because... There were other ways to hear about these films, and they did become sort of objects of obsession for us. Heavy
0: Metal was one for a while.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know that that movie's release, uh, a home video release for a long time was hung up because of music rights. I and-
0: never saw it. I missed it a couple times on HBO, and I knew it existed, but it would never be on home video because of music rights. And I, I for like probably twelve or fifteen years, Heavy Metal was this this missing movie. And then, and then I was able to see it. <laughs> it wasn't that great. So yeah, you'll you'll see some of that stuff. Here, here's a good one. I only have two left. Uh, this is from Mike Thompson seventy eight. Whose career are you guys most interested in tracking as the 80s progresses? Tom Cruise, Tom Hanks, or Arnold Schwarzenegger? All three had major successes in the 80s, but different types of movies. I I can't speak for Drew, but I think tracking all three of these gentlemen is going to be a lot of fun. Steve Martin, for me, is a personal one uh, that I love to track his career throughout, throughout the decade because he starred in very few hits, but also very few bad movies and and I'll take somebody who had an eye for quality over a guy who got lucky at the box office.
1: I think Hanks is interesting because Hanks took a while to figure out who Hanks was. And there was there was a moment where he started to come into focus around Big, we realized okay, it's not he's not just going to do dumb white guy comedies because he was certainly one of those guys like Michael Keaton and and you know, uh, we just did a, a DC Cab and that character that Bill Mars is playing is unfortunately what I think so many of these guys got shoved into in the early 80s is Why do early, I get the uh,
0: idea that you're going to hate you hate bachelor party?
1: Why am I afraid that you hate bachelor party?
0: Well we'll see when we get there.
1: Okay. But uh but there's a bunch of these early so Tom Hanks for a long time I don't I don't know that you could really call your shot that he was going to end up being who he was whereas I think Tom Cruise from day 1 Cruise was focused on this career where he was trying to pick filmmakers that were a little bit different and scripts that were a little bit different. And he tried to stay away from sequels. And, you know, Cruz's career to me is really interesting because when the downs hit, they are really crazy downs. And when the highs hit, they're as good as anybody's work in the decade. So it's, it's, it's a really fascinating ride. Schwarzenegger is an icon. He is Schwarzenegger 100%. We'll be talking about all of the uh, yeah, the, I don't like a lot of his movies.
0: Uh, and I, I can, on occasion, get tired of Arnold himself. But if you're talking about icons of the '80s, you can't not love Arnold. I mean, you just <laughs> like I don't love Stallone that much. But if you're talking about films of the '80s, you you know he is an icon. He has to be tracked, uh, cited, and and you know respected in that regard. Uh, and it'll be fun to track uh, you know um, Stallone stuff as well
1: what were some of your best video store finds of the eighties movies that you took a chance on in the store, knowing nothing going in the beast with Jason Patrick would be one for me, says Brock Anderson as a video store clerk in the late eighties. The, the real treat for me was uh, finding uh, foreign titles that had not gotten American theatrical releases at all. And that's how I started to really get twigged to some of the stuff that I love now. I'll never forget, I was uh, working in a place called Rent-A-Movie in Tampa. A guy came in one night, and he was looking for a movie called Wheels on Meals. And I kept thinking he was saying it wrong. And I'm like, dude, are, are you sure you don't mean Meals on He's like, no, it's called Wheels on Meals, I promise. We had it. It was not in, so he didn't go home with it. He came back the next day. I ended up taking it home because I was so curious after hearing the title, and that was my introduction to Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung. So that was a real eye-opening, holy shit, what's happening here, moment for me.
0: Uh, well, I've, I've talked about it a couple of times, and I'll say it again. Tom Eberhardt's Without a Clue. That one I just rented on a whim and fell madly in love with it. Uh, I just randomly, out of nowhere, thought of some obscurities, one called Psychos in Love, and the other called Eat and Run.
1: <laughs> I don't yeah, yeah, I... I I miss being able to find stuff on video, but that was more common. And the eighties was where I began my habit of, all right, I'll see that one on video. Okay. I'll make sure I see this one in the theater and really got used to that sort of delineation for a long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. It's hard to just think back. I mean, like you'd, you'd grab, if it wasn't a movie that you knew from the Malton guide or from a magazine or from, from, you know, Fangoria, and it was just a blind guess, I mean, you'd more often get stuff like Demonoid, you know, that was, you'd just be like, you know, it's like rolling the, uh, spinning the roulette wheel and it goes ba-boom. Demonoid, you know, uh, there was, you know, you would find your little treasures. I mean, Sleepaway Camp was one of those for me. Mute Witness, not ninety, not 80s, but Mute Witness is a movie I discovered on video. Oh, oh
1: okay. Here's one that we talked about that I did not see theatrically. My dad weirdly did not see it theatrically. And I asked to take it home because I liked the cover. Like, I just thought the poster was cool.
0: Bronco Billy. My dad and I losing our minds for Thief. Oh, Thief. Good one. Yeah. I mean, but that's the thing. It's like more about half the stuff you would rent. The normal VHS trip would be like you would either go in to get something very specific and they didn't have it. And so if you were pulling something off the shelf that you didn't know, it was like a 30% chance it'd be decent. But so many movies that we all talk about nowadays are stuff that I just randomly pulled off the shelf and said, Oh, I like this. Um,
1: well, the, uh, uh, we've answered that one. The, uh, the last one from mine is Andrew Carden, wh- uh, who did ask us if we were going to review hell night. And I pointed out when we did we just <laughs> need to listen to the end of the episode. Um, but he also asked, what is your favorite film produced by the cannon group? Probably runaway train dude. Exact one. I was going to go to, I agree with you. I think the best thing they ever released was Runaway Train. So cool. I can't wait to get to Runaway Train, and that's coming uh, next year. Uh, guys, thank you so much for, uh, for sending these in. We love that you guys are so engaged and that we could ask in a morning and get this many by the afternoon. Thank you so much. Um, we hope that we answered uh, all of them for you. And if not, then make sure that you uh, get our attention next time. Um, uh, we will have many more guests coming up in the next few weeks here on Patreon. Scott's been killing it lately with some of the people he's invited. I really enjoyed the conversation we had last time with Nathan Rabin and just getting to talk to him. Finally, after reading him for so many years was fun, especially just bouncing old eighties stuff off of. Oh him. yeah. So yeah. No- Nathan.
0: I don't know him either except through his work and Twitter, but, um, I thought, well, obviously he's an established, interesting film critic. He's good enough to be on the show, but then once you read his stuff, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. This guy needs to be on the show. (laughs) Yeah. So thank you, Nathan, and thank you, patrons. All the uh, the bonus episodes, we enjoy doing them, and we can only do them thanks to you. So we thank you.
1: Absolutely. Uh, uh, As always, please spread the word, uh, share reviews, share the show with people who haven't heard it, uh, and we'll have... uh, We're getting ready to record our best of 1983, which... That might be the hardest thing we've done yet. And, uh, it's a then contradiction we are-
0: in terms. It's an oxymoron. The yeah, best of 1983. Drew, just without any prep, top two movies of 1983. Possession and The Right Stuff. They're definitely both in my top ten. All right, until next week, signing off. Thanks.